I too would extend Christian greetings to all of you this evening. I appreciate it. The song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And then the thoughts of, uh, well, I've never heard Ecclesiastics 1 referred to as the hamster chapter, but that was good. I appreciated that. Uh, not to be weary and well-doing and just keep running around in that, what is that circle a hamster runs in? I don't know what you call that thing. Some kind of a wheel? And sometimes that's what it feels like, but not to be weary in that. I appreciated that thought. On behalf of Karen and myself, I'd like you to know that we have felt a warm welcome here in your congregation. You have been kind to us and loving, and we realize that we are the outsiders invading into your setting, and so we are strange, but you have been very diligent in making us feel at home. We are excited to be here. I'm glad to be here tonight and share the Word of God, because like I've said before, we are living in exciting Bible times. We're living on the trumpet side of the ascension, and that should be exciting to us as we think about what is ahead for God's people. Tonight I'm going to, the Lord allows me, gives me breath, I want to talk about a subject that is very dear to my heart. The Word of God is precious to me, but there are certain subjects that I love to speak about. But before I launch into that tonight, I want to talk about something else. Professional sports world. I'm talking about professional basketball, baseball, football, hockey, soccer. There are two aspects to a sports team. There's offense and defense. Did you know that, Tyler? Offense and defense, right? Two aspects to a sports team. And defense is very important because what defense does, it prevents the other team from scoring. So I've heard it said already that it's defense that wins championships. I don't know how much truth is to that. Whatever truth is to that, however, I would say tonight that you can't win without offense. At some point, you've got to score a run or a point or a goal to win. And so if a basketball team is playing basketball and they're always down defending, that's not a good situation because when you're defending, you're not scoring. And so I can use the example also of a professional football team. And you may wonder, Terrell, 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 just let me finish this, all right? Uh, okay, this is going to be okay. Uh, a professional football team has its team members split up into two squads. In professional football, you either play offense or you play defense. Now, there are a few exceptions, but very few. And so either you're on the defensive team or you're on the offensive team. You don't switch back and forth, not very much. And so if your defensive squad is on the field most of the game, you are in big trouble because that means, generally speaking, you're not scoring and you're not going to win the game. Does that make sense to you? I think so. It's a bad sign if your defense is out there all the time. Now, I realize that sports is a sticky subject, especially for a Mennonite preacher behind a pulpit. But let me say this about sports. i got four things I want to say about sports. What I just said prior to this, I had a reason for that, and it's going to tie into the message, and you'll understand a little later this evening. But now I want to make four comments about sports, since I talked about it. The there is a difference between sports and the church. The difference is this. Sports is about, is about what man can do. The church is about what God can do. The second thing I would say is you cannot be a real Christian and be consumed by sports. The third thing I would say is sports has the potential to ruin your appetite for the things of God. And the fourth thing I would say is sports, uh, sports has many record books and, and 
big record books that go back many, many years, but there is a record that has never been written down, and that is this. Sports has a record of taking the passion of God's people to the wrong place. Now, tonight, the title message is Church Aflame. I invite you to Matthew chapter 16. We use two verses here as a text this evening, and then we will go to the book of Acts, and we will spend most of the evening in the book of Acts. But Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 and 19, Jesus said, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus made a profound statement some 2,000 years ago that changed the course of God's people. It was a change in church. It was a change from the law and from high priests and sacrifice and the blood of animals. That was the church. And Jesus made this statement, and it changed that course to a Holy Spirit-filled Men and women that were following Jesus, we're going to build the church. You know, friends, tonight that course is still at work today, and that course will be in work until that trumpet sounds. Because that is the course that God has laid out, and that statement that Jesus made some 2,000 years ago that he will build his church and that there's going to be a bride, that is still a statement that is relevant for today, for us here tonight, when Jesus said, I will build my church, that is a profound statement. That is a st- statement of divine truth. It's a divine statement. That statement is a promise. As sure as you're sitting here tonight and you've got warm blood flowing through your body, that promise will come true. There is going to be a bride, praise God, and I plan to be a part of that. I'm looking forward to that wedding. Not only is it a promise, but it is a great invitation. Jesus said, I will build my church, my friends, tonight. That is an invitation that is all-inclusive. It is not exclusive. It doesn't matter who you are tonight. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, where you came from, what your background is, what culture you come from. That's an invitation for every one of us tonight. It's also a statement that requires a response. From you and from me. When Jesus said, I will build my church, what kind of church do you think he was talking about? Did Jesus mean, well, as long as, you know, we drive, I've noticed as we drive around these roads, there's all kinds of churches planted out here in the country, in your towns. So as long as you've got a building and you got a sign out front that says a church, and as long as you got a preacher that can hobble up onto the platform and a few people wander in, is that the kind of church Jesus was talking about? Was Jesus talking about a laid-back, complacent, lukewarm church, you know, just whatever, you know, we're Christians, but we love the Lord, and, and no, Jesus said, that kind of church, I'll spew it out of my mouth. Was Jesus talking about some kind of a church that is compromising and a little bit worldly and one foot in and one foot out? No way. He said, you got to repent if that's what kind of church you are. So Jesus isn't looking for that kind of a church. That's not his bride. Oh, do you think? Jesus had the conservative Mennonite church in mind. When he said this, you think so? And I see smiles on your face. Oh, do you think Jesus meant that? Uh, or did he mean the Dunker Brethren, or the Baptists, or the Amish, or the Beachy, or the Pentecostals? Well, friends, tonight, I got news that's not new news for you, but I got news for you tonight, brothers and sisters, there will be no denominations in heaven. There's not going to be a Mennonite um, Main Street. 
or a Baptist Boulevard or an Amish alley, there's not going to be anything like that, all right? The true church of Jesus Christ, the bride, is a church of real Christians. Jesus said, I will build my church. And as I read his word, I believe that he is talking about a church that has both offense and defense in it. Defense, that is solid, friends. The church needs to have defense. Solid, rock solid, steadfast, strong, shield of faith. It is dead serious about pursuing a safe path. A defense that is dead serious about standing on the truth. Defending truth. Not altering, call, not altering our course, but staying on the path. And I'm all in for defense, friends. The Bible has a lot to say about defense. However, it takes offense to win. To win the battle, to have victory. And if, you know, we're not going to turn there tonight, but Ephesians chapter 6, I think it is, where it says to put on the whole armor of God. And if you look at that armor, some of it is, some of it is defensive and some of it is offensive. And you can, I think maybe there's seven pieces. And I believe that as I look at it, maybe four of them are offensive pieces of armor. It takes offense to win. I chose this word tonight, a flame, church of flame. For a reason, it's not a Bible word, at least not a King James Version word. But in Webster's, that word means in flames. I like to think tonight about a church that's in flames. And, and we can think about our own churches. I want our church in Traverse City to be in flames. It means to be glowing. It means to be on the offense, conquering, gaining ground. You know, the opposite of that would be a church that ah, just can't get any fire going and we get a little smoke and a little smoldering sometimes and sometimes a little wind will come and a little bluff, puff will flame up and then it dies back down. No, tonight I'm talking about something different than that. I'm not saying tonight that we got too much defense in our churches not at all. There are two ditches, as we always know. You can go in the ditch of all defense, or you can go in the ditch of all offense. That's not where we want to be. But I will say this tonight. One of the things that can happen to a church, you focus on defense, and you get in a survival mode. Survival. Defending. And again, don't get me wrong tonight. I'm not against defense. I'm all in for defense. But let's not get in this survival mode where, you know, we survived this thing and we survived the charismatic uh, movement. And some of you younger ones probably don't even know what we're talking about, but we survived that. And we survived the, the godliness means prosperity movement. And we survived the onslaught of divorce and remarriage that wanted to come into our churches. And we've survived the first phase of uh, technology that has busted upon us. And we've survived COVID-19 and some of them haven't survived it, but most of us have. And we're surviving. We're in a survival mode. The defense is working. Yes. That is good, friends. But the church is designed to do more than just survive. Do you believe that? More than just survive. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I'm not much of an artist here, but I want to put a few more things on here. Let's just say that this is the road from, some of you can't see, but we'll call this earth here. So it starts here, and we'll call this heaven up here. And then we got people, and we'll call it the church, and they're headed that direction, from earth to heaven. 
Now Jesus said, we got the church going to heaven, and he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, let's see here. So let's call this a gate. I know that doesn't look all that great, but I hope a little visual helps put a picture in your mind. So a gate is to keep something in or to keep something out. And so in this case, the gate of hell is to keep people from moving forward on a path on a destiny to heaven. And Jesus said the gates of hell can't keep the church back, can't keep it from moving on, can't keep it from having victory. And he uses the word prevail. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That word prevail means cannot overpower it, won't be a detriment or hold out against it. And so Jesus said that the church is going to heaven, but the devil's going to put up gates to keep them from getting there. And I like what Brother Val Yoder said in a book he wrote about the church. I really appreciate this quote. And I quote him. He said, I envision a church that damages the gates of hell. That's what I want us to get a hold of tonight, friends. That's offense, brothers and sisters. That's the church that is truly marching to Zion. And, I, and that's what I want to be a part of. I want our church in Traverse City that runs right through the gates of hell, busts right through it, it can't stop it, and the pieces fly 100 feet, and the devil puts up another gate. You see, it's not just one gate, but he'll throw up another one. We run right through that one because we are going to get there. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it because it's a church that is aflame. It's like a fire that's burning a path to heaven. And then Jesus said, he said, that's what it's going to be. And then he said, and I give unto you the keys. The next verse. It's like Jesus being here tonight, and he said, Delmer, I give you the keys. Jerry, I give you the keys. I don't know many names here tonight. Dwayne, I give you the keys. It's a personal opportunity that we need to respond to. And I know that many preachers have many um, ideas of what this verse 19 means, and I believe basically that it means that the church has authority here on earth. But I believe that there is also the thought here that Jesus is handing to us the responsibility. He's offering it to us. And he said, what are you going to do with it? I give you the keys to build this church that will run right through the gates of hell. There are difficult times ahead for the church. I care a lot about it. I care a lot about what happens in the next years. I care because I got grandchildren coming up in the church, and I care a lot about what happens to the church. I care about your children and your grandchildren. But you know, friends, the church has got three choices. We can either hunker down in defense and hope we make it enough rules that we can survive everything, we can go on, def- on offense like the New Testament church, the model in Acts, or we can do both. And I believe that's what Jesus would have us to do when he hands us the keys. Offense and defense. Tonight, I'm going to focus in on offense at Church of Flame. What does that look like today? I got several points of what I want to share with you. It's not conclusive about what the Lord has laid on my heart, what a church of flame looks like today. Now we can go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. My first point is this full of faith. And the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
But you shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which was taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olive, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day journey. And when they were come together, we went into an upper room where abode both Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Okay, so we see here that Jesus said to those that were going to build this church that will run right through the gates of hell and that will get there, he said, I'm going to give you power and it's going to be Holy Ghost power, Holy Spirit power. You don't have to do this on your own. And we might say tonight, well, you know, that sounds good. I mean, I would like to have that, and, and it sounds really good, but is it real? Is it for us today? I mean, this is Acts, and is it for me today? Or is this just for, you know, the, the premier missionaries, the guys that really need it, or, or the church leaders? Or uh, really, is it for all of us? I like to say tonight it is for all of us. And if you read this, and I don't know that, I've always understood it this way, but it sounds to me like he was talking to those that he lists in verse 13 and 14. These were, yes, they were disciples, but there was about 120 people, and it included the women, and not just the preachers, and not just the, the missionaries, but they, and if you go to chapter 2, we come to the day of Pentecost, and it says they were there with one accord, and I think he's probably talking about these 120 people in verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, all of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And friends, tonight, this is one of the keys to have a church that is aflame, is that we are filled with the Holy Ghost. We have a lot of options today of what we want to be filled with, and that's why we're having revival meetings, so that we can revive our hearts and make sure that we're filled with the right thing. The Holy Ghost of God, the Holy Spirit. You know, churches, there's going to be no fire. There's going to be no glowing without the Holy Ghost. Now, you can have a lot of action. You can have a lot of programs. You can have a lot of smoke and a lot of smoke screen and a lot of noise. But it won't be flame, spiritual flame and spiritual power unless we're filled with the Holy Ghost. Now let's go over, I just want to pick up some verses here. In chapter 4, think about being full of faith in the Holy Ghost, chapter 4. Uh, let's see, verse 29. Okay, Peter and John had been threatened. They said, listen you guys, you guys quit preaching about Jesus. We don't want to hear it. We're done. You've healed this man. You've made this big uproar. We don't want to hear it. And it says in chapter 4, verse 18, they called them commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. And they said, I, I, whether it's right, how Peter say, whether it's right in the sight of God, to hearken unto you more than unto God? I mean, do we listen to you men or do we listen to God? We just can't help but say what is inside of us. That's what they said. Oh, we can't help it. It just comes out. And I don't know, I was reading this this afternoon as I was meditating, and i got to be careful where I go here, but I was thinking, did we really do the right thing during COVID to shut down? Did we really? If this is so much inside of us, how can we help but say it? And I, I, don't, I think we responded about it like you guys did, so I'm not being critical of anybody tonight. But, you know, if we had it overdue again, I question, I really do. If this is what's inside of me, how can I keep it from coming out? Okay, where is it going? Anyhow, so we get down to verse 29. They have been threatened, and now the Lord behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness we may speak the word. Oh, they were filled with the Holy Ghost, and they were threatened, and they said, we can't help it. We're going to have holy boldness here to speak the word. And verse 30, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spoke the word with boldness. 
My friends tonight, I would love to be in a prayer meeting like that, wouldn't you, Dwayne? Be in a prayer meeting where the room is shaken because the Holy Ghost is there and it's full of power. Oh, I would love that. And then it says, in the multitude of them that believed. You see, friends, this is, this is a church that's on offense. It's a flame, and there's a multitude that believed. Offense. Chapter 6. Just picking up various verses here. Verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Ghost. And go to verse 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and the great company of the priests were obedient to the faith, and Stephen full of faith and power. And so we're here, we have the man Stephen, he is full of faith in the Holy Ghost, and there is offense, there is a multitude of people coming to the church. Somebody by the name of J.D. Greer, I quote him, he said this, The early church had no building. They had no money. They had no political influence. And yet they turned the world upside down. And I would maybe add to that, they didn't have committees and they didn't have programs. And yet they turned the world upside down. Go to Acts chapter 17. Talking about turning the world upside down. Acts chapter 17. Paul and Silas are preaching in 17. And they preach faith in the risen Jesus. And it says in verse 4, And the they believed, and a great multitude believed. There was offense. And then the, the accusers came along in verse 6 and said, We've got to do something. These guys are turning the world upside down. They didn't quite have it right. They were actually setting it right side up. That's what happens. You set it right side up. Our world is upside down. We need the church to turn it right side up. Offense. So as we read these scriptures... I ask the question, what did they have that we don't have today or that we don't have enough of? And again, I'm not being critical tonight of your congregation at all. I have a burden for the church overall. And so generally speaking, let me say this, generally speaking, the church in America is not turning America right side up. Upside down, they said. I think you would agree with me. The church in America, generally speaking, is quiet. It is distracted. It is influenced by culture. It is compromising. It is materialistic. It is plagued by individualism. And that's another thing that will happen, that if we allow individualism to plague, forget COVID-19 plague, this is way worse when you get the plague of individualism comes into your church and settles in. You are not going to have a church that's aflame, I can tell you that. But that's generally what we see in the churches in America. Now, let's come a little closer home tonight to the Amish Mennonite churches in America. You know what we are known for? Famous cooking. Mm -hmm. Restaurants. Amish Mennonite cooking. Oh yeah, people staying in line for it. We're known for that. We are known for the quality furniture we build. And then we should build good furniture. But you know, we this tag of Amish made furniture, us Mennonites like to ride along on that tag too. We're known for that. We're known for our quilts. They can bring a lot of money. We're known for our beautiful homes and manicured lawns. And I'll tell you what, I, uh, so we used to, years ago, we used to live in Ohio, in Holmes County, Ohio, and now I go back and it is breathtaking. It really is. And you drive through this community in, in Holmes County, Ohio, and, and Pennsylvania, it is amazing. And people are amazed by it. And we are known for that. We are known for our business savvy. And, and I, again, I'm amazed I drive through communities like this, and I've been away long enough that it's like, Wow. Unbelievable. These people know how to run businesses. We are known for our Amish chickens and, and Amish turkeys, and we are way up there in Traverse City, and we don't have any Amish chickens up there, but we can buy them because they're all over our stores, and we have Amish turkeys, and I think I've seen Amish water, and I, I don't know why the Baptists don't sell Baptist bananas or something, you know. So 
I'm not trying to be negative tonight, and it's not a fair statement for every church, but the question I ask tonight, is it a sign of being full of the Holy Ghost? Is the Amish, Mennonite, conservative church today turning the world upside down and right side up? I want to leave us with that challenge. We can get good at doing church without having the Holy Spirit empower us and fill us. Point number two. What's the church of flame look like? Been with Jesus. Here in Acts chapter 4, go back to chapter 4. I love this account. And Peter, in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, chapter 4, verse 8, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by which means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now they had healed a lame man that the Bible says he had been carried daily to wherever it was. He couldn't walk. From birth, it says, and they carried him there, and, and Peter and John come along. He was hoping for a little money, and lo and behold, they, they healed him by the power of God, gave him way more than he ever asked for, and he became saved that day. He was leaping and praising God. And there was, there was a lot of things happening, and if you keep reading in that account, 5,000 people were added to the church for that whole thing. Offense, friends. And then... The Pharisees came along, and oh, wait, okay, Peter, who do you think you are? What, what's going on there? Who do you think you are? Really? What's going on? And, you know, we know who you are. You're just a smelly fisherman. That's all you are. You know how to run a little sailboat, and that's about it. But then they came to realize that there was something real about this man, and they figured out and said, oh, this man, Peter and John, they've been with Jesus. That's what's going on. And I like Peter. When I get to heaven, I want to visit with Peter for a while. Oh, you know, he had his problems. Stick his foot in his mouth and say things he shouldn't say, and I can really relate to that. And, but man, when he got... When he really got saved, or whatever you want to call it, when he really realized who Jesus was and the calling upon his life, he was a changed man. If you go to, you go to chapter 1, verse 15, and in those days Peter stood up. I want you to see the Peter here in Acts compared to the Peter that we knew before. In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and he said, we have got to have an ordination. Now I just... Shorten that up a bit. But he said, we've got a church to build. And we've got to have an ordination. And let's get this thing going. This is the same Peter that denied Jesus three times. Said, I don't know you. I don't know you. I don't know you. The same Peter that Jesus turned to one time and said, Satan, get behind me. This was a changed man. He had been with Jesus. Jesus was in his heart. And it had changed his life. And he said, let's get this church rolling. And then you go to chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, this is after Pentecost, and there were people who were making fun of him, saying these guys are drunk, and Peter stood up. The man that slunk away at one time in his life, the man that one time said, you know, let's just go fishing. I don't know what happened to Jesus, let's go fishing. He is not going fishing, he's standing up. And he's saying, these people aren't drunk, these people are born again, they got Holy Spirit power. Go to verse 38, Peter is still standing up, and Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized. He's still standing. Oh, what a change in this man. 
The difference is they had been with Jesus. Their heart was given to Jesus. It was a flame. Friends, today the church will not be set aflame with just more knowledge and more information and more education and more programs and fancier buildings, but the church will be set aflame when men and women spend time with Jesus and follow Jesus and become immersed in the words of Jesus. It's not the glitter, it's not the glamour, but it's the power of God in our life. We've been with Jesus. Third point I would like to make is brotherhood and unity. And it says in chapter 2, verse 44, And all that believed were together and had all things in common, sold the possessions, gave things away, they continued daily in one accord in the temple, breaking bread. Verse 47, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. They had brotherhood, friends. And brotherhood is a big subject, and I'm just touching on it barely tonight. I believe in brotherhood. I believe in unity. I believe that is offense. I think that's a church that is an offense when you've got brotherhood, friends. A church that is aflame. And if you go over to chapter 12, verse 5, we have Peter in jail. And it says in chapter 12, verse 5, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Verse 12, and they were all gathered together praying. The church was together. They were unified. They had brotherhood. There is power, friends, in corporate prayer. I I don't know that we understand that. There's power in corporate prayer. Ephesians chapter 5, 21 talks about, let's see, I don't have it in front of me, but submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. That is brotherhood, friends. And we got these people today that are running around and they're not sure if they want to be members of a church. I don't know anything about your church, so I don't know. I can just talk from my heart this evening, friends. But I just, you know, why would you want to be a member? Eh, You can't read about membership in the Bible. The New Testament is full about supporting the local church body. And I'll tell you what, those people that don't want to be a member of a church and cannot submit to a church, I like to know how they're going to explain that to God someday. There is so much of the New Testament that you cannot obey unless you are part of a local body of believers. It's pride, friends, that keeps people out of the side of the church. It takes a humble heart to submit to one another, but that's what makes a church aflame. Brothers and sisters tonight, if you got brotherhood and you got unity and you got got Holy Spirit in your life and you've been with Jesus, friends, that's a bonfire that'll damage the gates of hell. You know, I would like to say one more thing about biblical brotherhood. Biblical brotherhood claims or takes responsibility for my brother and sister in our congregation. And let me give an example this way. Let's say that there's something that, I'll just use myself, that I want to do. And uh, there's this thing I want to do And I know in my heart that there are some people in our congregation that just would not appreciate that, and they wouldn't do that. But I really want to do this, and I believe, I know that I can do this, and I can still be a Christian, and I can still get to heaven, so I'm going to do it. That is not brotherhood. Brotherhood is this. Okay, I really like to do this, but I know that there are some in our congregation that will not appreciate it. And so I will refrain because the effect it will have on my brothers and sisters, and it may not be good for our church. That's brotherhood. And that's offense. That sets the church aflame. My fourth point, intentional. Someone has said that intentional is the most overused word that we have. I don't know about that. I, I know I use it some. But I think, friends, we've got to be intentional. If we want a church like this, it's not going to just drop down out of the sky somehow. We're going to have to be intentional. It says, I won't turn to this, but in, there later in Acts it says that Paul and Barnabas were men that hazarded 
their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were intentional. There was desire, as we talked about last night. There was effort. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. We must choose to intentionally follow Jesus. It isn't going to just happen. Dean Taylor said, and I quote, he said, how can you be a follower of Jesus unless you follow Jesus? Now that is really simple, but it is very profound. There's a lot of people today that say they're following Jesus, but you can't follow Jesus unless you follow Jesus. Intentionally following Jesus is very practical. It's everyday life. And it takes that, friends, for a church to be aflame and to damage the gates of hell. We need to follow Jesus every day in everything in our life. I have a preacher friend that said something like this, and this is not verbatim, but he said, I want to be part of a brotherhood, a church, that together we deal with the difficult issues of life that the church is facing today. Friends, that's offense. That's what I'm talking about tonight. And as I think about this, I think about the old saying or slogan, whatever you want to call it, WWJD. How many of you remember that? WWJ. Oh, yes. Okay. A lot of you do. Some of your younger ones don't know what we're talking about necessarily. WWJD stands for What Would Jesus Do? And I remember that was, kind of, that was a thing that came through our churches, I don't know how many years ago, and it was kind of a, a faddish thing. And some of our people wanted to buy into that. And okay, but uh, what I saw, what I remember is that there was too many of our people were more interested in wearing the bracelet than actually following Jesus. Uh, you know, you could have this bracelet that said WWJD. You know, this was neat, it was cool, whatever. You know, but okay, let, let's follow Jesus. You know, this is old. But I believe, friends, tonight that it is still a relevant question for today. What would Jesus do? And I think it is the right question as we face the difficult things that we're facing the issues of life today. What would Jesus do if he were here on earth today? Would he ride a donkey or would he drive a car? And if he drove a car, what kind of car would he drive? What would Jesus do? Would he wear the clothes that I wear? Would his house be similar to my house? Would his Sunday activities be similar to my Sunday activities? Would he eat at the same restaurants I eat at? Would he shop at the same stores I shop at? How would Salem Mennonite Church change if Jesus was a member here for one year? Wouldn't that be interesting? And maybe the most relevant question that we could ask tonight is this. Would Jesus have a smartphone? And you're saying, oh dear. This guy that Daryl got in here, he's going to trash smartphones. No, I'm not. My wife has a smartphone. I don't. My wife does. I'm not going to trash smartphones. But would Jesus have one? When it comes to technology, the church has played a lot of defense. I have played a lot of defense when it comes to technology. I have cried across our pulpit at home. By the way, friends, tonight, if you think that I'm being hard on you tonight, I want you to know that probably everything you've heard so far and probably everything you will hear all week long has been spoken, first of all, across our pulpit to our congregation, just so you know that. I'm not here picking on you. I don't know you. 
But I have played defense when it comes to technology in the church because I care, friends. I do care. I care a lot. And I am not techie at all. And it would take you only a minute to realize that because I, I don't even know how to, I don't know how to do anything on my wife's phone. I don't know how to turn on our laptop computer. Now, she uses it a lot for me. I don't know how to turn on I just don't enjoy it. I'm just going to be up front with you tonight. Uh, and so I try to be balanced and fair. But I have cried a lot of defense. This thing has threatened to destroy our churches, and you might wonder, okay, Delmer, really? Why do you care so much? I'll tell you why I care, friends. I've spent a lot of time with enough people that are fallen soldiers of the cross, and they have been stabbed in the heart by the sins that can come through technology, and then their blood is laying on the path. I have talked to too many young men that are trying to recover from the sins that have come through technology, and it is a hard thing to recover from. I have talked to too many married men that have fallen into sin, and they're trying to figure out how to recover their families and recover being a dad and work through all the consequences that come through all this stuff. I have seen too much, friends. It is one of the most difficult issues that is facing the church today, I do believe, and it is threatening to destroy our churches of flame. Oh yeah, we can have church, but my friends, tonight you cannot have a church that is a flame when you've got pornography sitting in your pews. You can't do it. You can't have a church that is aflame when, when the people sitting in your pews are, are buried in social media. You can't do it. Gary Miller wrote a book, Surviving the Tech Tsunami. How many of you have read that book? Yes, good book to read. I appreciate Gary's writing. I, I love to read his books. Surviving. But friends, tonight we want to do more than survive, don't we? There's so much I could say, and I don't know what to say tonight, to be honest with you. Listen, friends. There was a little boy one time. He loved his daddy. He adored his daddy. One day his daddy was home, and he was in his office, and the little boy thought, you know what, I'm going to surprise daddy. I like daddy so much, I'm going to sneak around the house, and I'm going to go up to the office window. I'm going to knock on the window and say hi to daddy. And he went around the house, and he came up to the window, and before he knocked on the window, he looked in the window, and he saw his daddy sitting there, and he saw him looking at something on his computer screen that was awful. And that little boy just turned around, and he went back into his room, and on his bed, and he's crying. He was so hurt. You see, he couldn't talk to his mom about it. Couldn't talk to his daddy about it. And he couldn't talk to his pastor about it because his pastor was his daddy. Friends, tonight I long for our churches not to only be on defense, and I have cried defense, but I long for our churches to be on offense when it comes to technology. I've seen the defense only does not work. We need to be on offense. We need to ask ourselves offensive questions like, like, is this what I need? That's an offensive question. Do I need this? Or do I just want this? How much screen time do I need? How much screen time should I have? Those are offensive questions. Recently, I was again reminded of where we're headed. We were in a, another state, and we were guests in somebody's home. A couple invited us. They had also invited another couple. And so we were there first before the second couple came. And that other couple came, and that man demonstrated rudeness like I have seldom seen disrespect to agree that was alarming. 
This man came in, he took off his plain suit coat, and he sat on the couch, and he totally immersed himself in his cell phone. And the host and I made several attempts to have a conversation with this man. We finally gave up, because it became pretty evident that whatever he was looking at was of more interest than us. Friends, is that how we follow Jesus? Please say that's not sin. No, it's not sin. I was also recently in a conversation with a young Christian man who is on the cutting edge of technology. He knows what he's talking about. And I asked him this question. I said, all the changes in technology of the last 20 years has been a tremendous challenge for the church. I said, are we over the hump or what are we in store for the next 20 years? And he said this, the changes in the next 20 years will be far greater than the, last, than the first 20 years, or the last 20 years. Is the church ready for the next 20 years? Does the church need new committees? Does the man on the couch need more rules and guidelines? Do we need more defense? Richard Hur, I don't know how many of you know him, but he said a long time ago, he said, I don't know if the church will survive technology. And I've quoted him over the years, and some of the church is not surviving. However, if we're only going to battle with defense, it's going to be a long, dry 20 years. It's true we need defense. We're in enemy territory. I understand that. But I believe, friends, the church will survive. Jesus said there will be a church. There's going to be a church that is aflame, that is going to look at technology, and they're going to be on offense. You know, 100 years ago, our forefathers had the foresight to say, we shouldn't have television. That was a good decision. I think you would agree with me tonight. They said, no TV. And I asked today, tonight, is there a people today in our generation that are going to be able to say, we have drawn a line in the sand? That's it. We're not going to cross that line. I hope there is, friends. But I'm alarmed at how our conservative Mennonite churches have gobbled it up and we have not drawn lines in the sand and we're just following through. I'm concerned, friends, that we be on the offense. There are biblical principles that are offensive that we can apply to technology. We should. They're there. They're there for that. The principle of contentment. Be on the offense. Content. The principle of brotherhood responsibility. Being honest with ourselves. What are the idols today? Has Google become our God? And I would like to... Well, I should be careful. You know, there are too many preachers getting behind our pulpits today that are getting their messages from the wrong God, or they're getting a lot of information from the Google God. My friends, today, let's go to the God of heaven for the word of God, the truth. I think we got to be careful, friends. I want you to understand tonight, you understand this, but technology, uh, internet, whatever you want to call it, is designed by evil men, not for your holiness. They have no intent to lead you to holiness. We need to understand that. And I would encourage you tonight for your Bible time, your time when you, you read the Word of God. I, I know I'm really old-fashioned, and I should have probably waited to preach this till Sunday night, and then I could have got out of here, right? But have your devotions in the book. There are too many distractions on the screen. If you're serious about communicating with God and reading God's word, read it in the book. We're not strong enough to do it on the screen. Technology. 
offense, defense. We need defense. We need blockers. We need guidelines. We need accountability. Very important. It's great. It's necessary. But friends, tonight, offense is the key. It is the key. Offense. Have hearts that are committed to holiness. If we're going to get through this, friends, more than just survive and be victorious with technology, we got to be committed to personal holiness. That is offense, friends. It's a personal choice. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he said, I give you the keys. What are you going to do tonight? Will you take those keys? Jesus is holding those keys out to every one of you tonight. Young man, young lady, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, Jesus is holding the keys out to you. I give to you the keys. Friends, tonight, if I can help you tonight to be revived in your heart of the importance of church, the church of flame, I believe that church should be so important to us that every member should be at every meeting if possible. And I say that to our own people. I know there's health issues. I know there's old age issues. I know emergencies come up. But friends, tonight we should plan to be at every service for a church of flame. And I ask the question, why are our Wednesday evening services so poorly attended? Why are our Sunday evening services so poorly attended? I tell you why, because there's something else that is more important. And if half the church is missing when you want to bust through that gate... You're going to have problems. You try taking half your body to work tomorrow morning and see how good that works. Jesus said, I give you the keys. My sons, my daughters, my people have the responsibility to build that church aflame. The question tonight is, have you taken the keys? Have you opened your heart to church aflame? Are you all in tonight for damaging the gates of hell? Are you on offense? Have you been with Jesus? Tonight, invitation, very simple. After a moment, we're just going to bow our heads. And I'm just asking tonight, if the Lord has spoken to your heart some way and you want revival in your heart and you're going to say, yes, God, I need to make change in my life. You've spoken to me tonight. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand and then I'm going to pray for those that raised their hands tonight. If you'd like to have revival in your heart, something that God has spoken to you about. Should we close our eyes? Anybody tonight? that says, yes, I would like to have be remembered in prayer and make a commitment. Yes, here, yes, hands. Hands all over the church. Anyone else? Yes. The Lord has spoken to many hearts tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, your hands are up. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. More hands. Anyone else? Yes. Father, in the quietness of this hour, Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Spoken to hearts tonight. We rejoice in revival. We rejoice in your spirit that convicts us and draws us to yourself. Tonight we rejoice in many hearts that are making commitments, church aflame, renewed vows, things in their life they want to change. Only you know, God, what it is. But I pray that there would be a special blessing upon everyone that raised their hand tonight, the many that had courage to do that, and I pray that whatever you have convicted them about, as they move to 
revive that part of their life for your strength to empower them. Pray for Holy Spirit power in their life. If they need to make changes, if they need to do hard things, whatever it is, God, that they would find the power and the strength in your spirit. And oh, Lord, we rejoice in the fact that you revive our hearts and we give you the honor and the glory and may your church be alive and aflame and burning and a light to a world that is so dark. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit tonight. In Jesus' name we pray.